0: You're listening to Bethany Radio. Mark content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Mark chapter 15, will be in verse 33 and 39 again. We'll be reading that familiar passage now from last week. We'll read it again together, Mark 15, 33. And I'll read through 39. And as you're getting there, show a picture from last week. Uh, came in from... Madeline, You know, I got to keep track who wins and all this sort of thing. But Madeline turned in one last week. She's got Jesus on the cross over here, e- Eloy, Eloy, And we'll look at that again today and the, the two uh, thieves beside him on the cross. And then beside that is, is uh, a lady, a woman on a bed. Some pictures up in the house. You might remember that. We, we were praying for North Korea last week and for Hey Woo, and uh, she sang Amazing Grace, and you remember that story about her. So anyway, thank you, Madeline, for drawing that. And the other pictures are on the board. Take a look at those each week. As we get back into our text, Mark 15, and uh, we want to hear from God's Word. That's that's why typically we come to read the Bible first. I, I don't want to come with a lot of fanfare or jokes or that sort of thing we want to hear god's word so that's why it's placed at the beginning because we say this is important i'm here to help expound on it look at it study it uh it's god's word and so that's that's what we want to look at first so let's do that and let's start in verse 33 again here this this account And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Lord, we just ask that you would guide, again, our time in your word. Guide the words that will come out of my mouth, that they would be truth. Lord, where there is not truth, where there is air, Lord, may it fall by the wayside. May we hear your truth from your word. Guide each one of us, Lord, and I'm asking for my own heart to come under your word and who you are. We recognize you as our authority we crown you, we worship you. I pray we'd obey you. I pray through our study here, we'd love you. And we would bow, if not physically on our knees, spiritually, Lord, on our knees to say, your God, what a mighty God, what a God of steadfast love who has brought us near. So guide our time together, would you, Lord? We pray by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2, admonishes us to, it's a familiar verse to many, to look to Jesus, right? The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The context of that verse is for us to realize we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, those who have lived by faith and they didn't yet receive the promise that they're to lay aside every weight and the the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race set before us and again that phrase looking to jesus what we set our eyes on and what we gaze upon affects us certain images tend to just sear themselves on our minds perhaps if you can Close your eyes. If you're married, you remember maybe that wedding day and what that looked like, or that first child, or your children when they were born. Perhaps you remember what you saw. Maybe you saw the space shuttle Challenger blow up. Uh, You remember that. Some maybe go back further. Uh, Some earlier. 9/11, the attacks. You remember what you saw. Those those images are, in a sense, they're seared on our minds. Maybe. Veterans Day, I'm sure there's images printed on the minds who served our country, maybe some of triumph, but some images we would rather just not have. Well, we've been working through Mark uh, 15, and last week we were in 33 through 39, and I think what we're doing and really want to do any time we open up God's Word is to gaze our eyes upon this wonderful servant king. So by God's grace, I'm hoping for each one of us that that our gaze at the King, King Jesus, would so affect our lives that you and I, that we could not get the image out of our minds. It would just stay there. To see the glory of the work of Christ on the cross. And then we might join the chorus, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. We want to fix our gaze on Jesus, and this passage will help us. Last week, we, we, I talked about questions we're answering as we go through. We looked at two of them last week, three more this week. Last week, we asked, kind of going down by the verses, verse 33, there was darkness in the land. We asked, why was there darkness in the land? And talked about the idea of judgment, kind of an indicative atmosphere of judgment or sin, the darkness of sin and death. We looked at Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not that Jesus was wondering why, really, or confused about what he was experiencing, but the the weight of God was pouring out his wrath on Jesus. That wrath intended for sinners, but placed upon the sinless one. And God turning his face away the very real feeling of separation of the of the incarnate christ from the father a feeling of being forsaken this week three more questions we're going to begin in verse 35 and that question is what is it that really made these bystanders think jesus was calling elijah where does that come in here we're going to look at this curtain of the temple. Why does it matter? What does that have to do with the cross? And then lastly, we'll look at this reaction of this centurion before Jesus. So three more questions, and we begin with number one. So it's in verse 35 and 36. It says, Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying wait let us see whether elijah will come to take him down mark here just doesn't give us the the why and what of these bystanders and their their thoughts here but in my study this passage i think there's one reasonable explanation of why they thought elijah was coming and you actually have the clue not in a greek bible but your own english bible it's you have it before you look at jesus words again in verse 34 I'll read just the first part of it. Uh, the ninth hour, he cried with a loud voice, and he cried two words, "Eloi, Eloi." This phrasing comes from Psalm twenty-two, one, and, and the Hebrew of that psalm reads in a similar way. Might read like this, "Eli, Eli, lama azavatai, or "T," something like that. There's that "Eli, Eli," or Aramaic, the language Jesus most likely. Spoke is what you have there in your Bible. Eloi, Eloi, Lama sabachthani. Either way, you hear the Eloi, which sounds a lot like Elijah. You kind of work it in, and the the J is really not there, but it sounds similar. In fact, the Hebrew name Elijah sounds like uh, Elihu. So it seems to me just a good explanation for this Eloi, Eloi. It sounds like. At the cry of Jesus, they're thinking he's calling Elijah. Sounds very similar. I think that's a helpful explanation. That's interesting how the Jewish people viewed Elijah, one who had been taken up in the whirlwind, so he never really died. And so this is some commentators and how the Jewish people at this time would have viewed Elijah. Here's one that says, Popular Judaism believed that Elijah had been taken bodily into heaven without dying, and that he would return in times of crisis to protect and rescue the righteous. So here's one of those times, perhaps. If Jesus is righteous, then we're thinking Elijah's going to return. Here's another commentator uh, commentary. Members of some circles of Jewish tradition believe that Elijah was sent like an angel to rescue famous teachers uh, in addition to his role in the time of the end. You know, it's like since he can't obviously come down from the cross, perhaps they're going to get to see Elijah come. Maybe even the drink, I read one place, the drink was offered to keep Jesus alive or with it until Elijah came. Like, let's keep him going as long as we can, as hard as it is on the cross, and maybe Elijah will come. That would not happen, would it? God had sent Moses and Elijah, remember the transfiguration, They were beside Jesus. But it was to Jesus that God addressed with a voice from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You see, one greater than Elijah or Moses was here. He was the prophet of all prophets, the king of all kings, being nailed to a cross and enduring the punishment for the sins of man. And only when the work was finished would Jesus yield up his spirit. Which takes us then to verse 37, where we read about Jesus. And we read that he uttered a loud cry and he breathes his last. He breathed his last. The other gospel accounts kind of fill in the blank as to this last breath of Jesus. Matthew 27 records, too, that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, it says. Luke 23 records that Jesus called out with a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. John 19 states that when Jesus had received that sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. So what do some of these other accounts tell us? Well, they tell us Jesus died willingly. He gave up or yielded his spirit. And one writer, Kent Hughes, makes two observations about this death, and I want to give them to you. Number one, Jesus did not die an ordinary death by crucifixion. Jesus was conscious to his very last breath. Jesus gave his life, it was not taken. Now read that last part again. Jesus gave his life, it was not taken from him. He yielded, he gave up his spirit. His second observation in regard to the words of Jesus, it is finished, he remarks and says this, Jesus had gone lower than any human had ever gone as your sins and mine poured over his wincing soul. He suffered a greater isolation from the Father than any living soul had ever undergone, and He conquered. Thus He could shout, in victory, finished, and confidently yield His Spirit to the Father. It looked like Jesus had been conquered or defeated. Maybe Satan and sin had won the day when He breathed His last. But it was just the opposite. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus satisfied the justice of a holy God. Verse 38 then tells us one of the first results of the finished work of Christ. Look at verse 38 with me. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You remember the temple? fashioned after that wilderness tabernacle uh, of the exodus when they came out of Egypt, Israel did, and really the temple had been first built by Solomon, David's son. He realized, and Solomon realized, uh, as you read the account, that God can't be contained by a house, by a, you know earth-built temple, but it was a place of mediation between God's people and their holy God. And so in this sense, it really was a, a dwelling place of God amongst his people. But even the holy place and then the most holy place were not accessible by all people, only the priests, and then even one just once a year into some parts of it. We're going to talk about that more later, these parts of this temple, the holy place and the most holy place of this temple. Well, later on, this Solomon's temple was plundered, destroyed, Jews were taken into captivity and when the Jews returned to the land they started rebuilding it though I don't believe it was what it once was but in Jesus time on earth it was Herod who had built up this temple into a magnificent structure and here's what one kind of Jewish historian Christian helps us understand his name is Alfred Edersheim of spoken of him before he says this about a part of the temple and really he's speaking about the veil this curtain just to even get a get a mind's picture of it he says this according to an account dating from temple times there were altogether 13 veils used in various parts of the temple two new ones being made every year the veils the curtain before the most holy place were 40 cubits, 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, and the thickness of the palm of the hand, and wrought in 72 squares which were joined together. And these veils were so heavy that, and he recognizes in the exaggerated language of the time, it needed 300 priests to manipulate each of them. Now, perhaps there's some exaggeration to that, but think of this, to, to maneuver this veil... This is no small blanket type uh, item. And he goes on then to give us a picture of the timing of the, this event. Remember, Jesus breathes his last, and Mark tells us just right, verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Think of the timing. So we got the image of Golgotha and the cross, and we're there, and we're moved to the image of the temple and the curtain, and there's the there's a, you know, there's courtyards and there's a holy place and then this this most holy place. Here's what was going on at the time according to Edersheim. As we compute, it may just have been the time when at the evening sacrifice the officiating priesthood entered the holy place either to burn the incense or to do other sacred service there. Do you know what Edersheim's telling us? At this hour Jesus on the cross breathes his last. Here goes this priest in the holy place. And all of a sudden, the curtain, I mean, they're shaking. Matthew tells us about that. Rocks are cracking, all these sorts of things. But this curtain is torn. That priest had quite a day at the office, if you will. The curtain is torn. Well, what's helpful is the Bible gives its own commentary on what I've just explained here not up to us we can look back it's it's helpful to look back at history and what happened but it's even more helpful when the Bible helps explain this curtain of the temple what does that have to do with the cross and I want to take you to the book of Hebrews Uh, for time's sake we won't read a lot although we will read some portions but it's Hebrews chapter 9 and if you are using one of the uh, the chair Bibles. If you've got a, one of the black ones, there, it's page one thousand and five. I help you out. If you want to find that page, one thousand and five is where we'll start. Or a red Bible in the back, it's page one seventy three. Book of Hebrews. Now I'm going to basically, and not comment, read through some of these descriptions. Now that you're fresh, you here's Jesus on the cross. It's finished. Why have you forsaken what Jesus did? The curtain is torn, and here is Hebrews. And just listen to the richness of the explanation as we read through this. Kind of the former temple, what it was like, and, and then how Jesus intersects with this, fulfills us, really. Uh, Hebrews 9, chapter, or verse 1. says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, which we said was perhaps at the time of Jesus' death. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, Reformation. You know there was a Reformation before the... what We look at the Reformation. We just celebrated right, a couple weeks ago. The Reformation. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Think of the sacrifice of Christ, his blood. Now skip over to verse 24. For Christ has entered not only into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Are you hearing some of the commentary on what Christ has done? His bearing of the sins that bring us to God. Now, head to chapter 10. In verse 19. I'm skipping some things along the way. You can read the entire chapters, but chapter 10, go to verse 19. This is familiar. I think we, I've been reading it the last couple of weeks. Therefore, brothers, there's a therefore conclusion. Here it is. What's the crux of the matter? Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews does a great job, these, these passages of helping us understand what Christ and his sacrifice has done for sinners and this, that we can draw near now to the presence of God. There's access to God. The temple had that curtain where no one could go except the priest once a year, and with blood, it's torn, it's finished, it's done. Christ has made the way. He is the way, isn't He? The truth and the life. He's made a way. First Peter 2, 24 and 25 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have returned to the shepherd an overseer of your souls. Like sheep that have returned, He's brought back. And the death of Christ really signals our own death. In Christ we die to sin and we live in righteousness. And what's the outcome of those dead to sin and alive to righteousness? Dwelling with God. Psalm 140, 13 says, Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. But for the sinner, Psalm 5, verse 4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. There's a dwelling with God. Evil may not dwell with God. The upright may dwell with God. We in Christ can enter the dwelling place of God. The curtain is torn between us And the most holy place. Why? Because in Christ we've died to sin and we live in Christ's righteousness. Christ not only died to pay the penalty of sin, he was also wholly righteous. And it's by his righteousness, his being wholly upright and holy, that we are. Then in Christ, we can approach the throne of God with confidence. Remember who you are in Christ. To approach God with confidence First Peter three eighteen for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit well, we head back to Mark 15 and we meet one more character that of the centurion he's been watching Probably seen, who knows, how many of these crucifixions, perhaps hundreds? We don't know. And Mark records his reaction in verse 39. It says, and when the centurion, so we're back to Jesus breathing his last, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Kent Hughes calls the centurion's response a responsive, momentary heralding of the deity of Christ. A momentary heralding of the deity of Christ. By the centurion proclaiming, truly this was the Son of God, he was in essence saying that this is a deity, a God, perhaps the God of the centurion. So what made him say this? There's something about the way in which Jesus died that caught the eye of this soldier. We see it there. When you see those words, the centurion stood facing him. He saw that in this way he breathed his last. There's something about the way in which Jesus either breathed his last or Jesus' time period here that the centurion sees and says, this was the Son of God. I would lean towards this. I think the centurion watched Jesus, perhaps even from those beatings endured by the other soldiers, perhaps seeing Jesus wear that crown of thorns. Perhaps the centurion saw Jesus' attitude on the cross to the insults which came, and yet Jesus was silent or forgave them. He saw the darkness of the afternoon and heard Jesus' final words, and even climactically the way that Jesus died, Yielding up his spirit, giving up his life willingly. And then Matthew records about the earthquake and the rocks split and the tombs were open. There was just something different in this one than all the others who he had seen crucified. The bystanders had mocked Jesus. We looked at that. His own people had yelled, Crucify! Even the shepherds of Israel, the very leadership of the Jewish people, had mocked and ridiculed Jesus. But this centurion got it. We're not told of his life after this. We don't know for sure. Did he follow God? Did he just see this as a God? I don't know. I'd like to think this changed his life. I believe it did from what he saw. He saw the Son of God. Mark's Gospel that we've been in for quite some time begins with this very title of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1 of this Gospel says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now, near the end, Jesus is declared by a centurion, most likely a Gentile, this was the Son of God. A quick search through Scripture reveals these truths about this title of Jesus. And I just want to, I just typed in... Son of God, and looked at how it describes Jesus. And this is just a summary form. He was worshipped as Son of God by the disciples in the wind-tossed boat. His title of Christ is associated with Him being Son of God. Unclean spirits fall down and cry out to the Son of God. The angel says to Mary, the child born will be called Holy the Son of God, the Son, uh, yeah, the Son of God. The Son of God is equated with being King of Israel in John 149. Jesus, when he's raised to life, his resurrection, declares him to be Son of God. And 1 John 5 teaches that those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God will overcome the world. So we ask for our spiritual eyes of our hearts, why would we not set our eyes upon Jesus, the Son of God? Jesus is not just a nice man who died on a cross or just a great teacher or religious figure. He is the Son of God. And so Jesus is God. He is deity. And through the death of Jesus on the cross, the Father's wrath has been propitiated his wrath has been poured out on jesus but satisfied in jesus death so that he might look on us with favor because of jesus through the death of jesus on the cross we can worship jesus who's purchased us from our slavery to sin and we can be with him forever through the death of jesus on the cross the curtains torn we have access to god and I think even saying that, we have no, we understand what that means. We have no idea what we have. You realize we're talking about the Lord in Sunday school, the access we have before the maker of heaven and earth. We're not scared. We want to fear him in a reverent type fear. We have access. We can draw near because of Jesus. There's no fear of condemnation in Christ. through the death of Jesus on the cross, we in Christ, we have died to sin, to live for Him. So this calls for, I think, two things from us. Worship and proclamation. Worship and proclamation. Worship, just like the centurion that has witnessed these events and looks back and says, whoa, look at what has happened here the earth has shook curtains torn darkness lifted if you experience something fascinating or exhilarating or something awesome i'm going to gather that most of you like i you want to tell somebody if something happens you want to share this news uh isn't it even thieves that that rob a store? I mean, many of the ways that they get caught is they just got to tell somebody they got away with it. And they get caught that way. I'm not telling you how to rob or anything like that. But we we have those experiences. And they're awesome experiences. Facebook is, right, is an example. We we experience something with our family. And you want to put it there and share it with people and share these experiences. Let me encourage all of us that That we gain a heart to evangelize the nations, to take the gospel to the world, beginning in Leroy, on your block, in your neighborhood, and throughout the nations. But that we begin with a foundation in worship, not a foundation of, let's start with, here's the steps to salvation, here's how. That's certainly part of it. But we start with a foundation that we ourselves, each one of us, worship the Son of God. We're saying, Look at this. I got to have you heard about this, Jesus. Can I show him to you from scripture? May we see Christ in his radiant glory, all his superiority, and worship him gladly, and that that worship would then ignite our proclamation to the world. Not just proclaiming to the world because it's a duty, but out of our Love and worship, and so let, let me just encourage you all and my heart to be worshipers of King Jesus. Worship Him. see him, meditate on the truths of Scripture. Think again about the curtain, read over Hebrews nine and 10. that we might worship him and then take that message to the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we just acknowledge that we want to spread this gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. To spread it to the nations from our little part of the world. Father, in order to do that, in order to glorify Your name, I pray, though, that our hearts begin in worship. That we look at this account, we look at Darkness, Jesus being forsaken, taking our wrath, taking all our sins, bearing the sins of many, that we might have full and complete access to God. Lord, stir in us a worship and a praise of your name, that we would read Psalms and join with the psalmist to praise your name because we're in Christ and. And we have a Father. We can call you Father. And we have a Savior. And Lord, may you lead us in that worship that we would overflow to taking this message uh, to the other nations and possibly to our neighbor. Lord, we ask your help in this. Tear us away from any idolatry, any worship of small little gods to worship you. Prince in your name.